Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. This is the Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our bonnet boat was one As we sailed into the mystic The Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. I'm reading from my memoir, Lost Rites, Leaving Churchland, Chapter 10, Part 2. In this episode, Paradise is Rocked by Death and by Doubt. Was our great West Coast adventure coming to an end? Was it little more than a way station, a respite along the way? Or was it the refuge I needed to consolidate the journey so far? Was I being prepared for the years of my greatest creativity? Let's find out. No one was a greater supporter of my writing than my father. He was living at some remove from city life himself, in Denby, a small town in the Ottawa Valley. It was there he could finally afford a house of his own on the edge of a wood within view of a small lake. Its prospects satisfied the romantic in him as a scene that might be featured on a Christmas card. In his relative isolation, he became a voluminous letter writer. A letter from me would receive a reply back within a week, even at that distance. I knew he was proud of me. Sometimes my father referred his friends to me when they had church-related queries, as if he was pleased to have access to a resident expert. In turn, I referred my father to Henry Hill, a retired bishop and a truly gracious man living in retirement with the Sisters of St. John the Divine in Toronto. Surprisingly, my father was looking for someone to guide him on a personal retreat. Until then, he hadn't gone in for that sort of thing. In retirement, my father had ramped up his involvement in the church. He became a licensed lay reader, authorized to lead worship and to preach under the supervision of a priest, and sometimes in the priest's absence. He would write out his sermons longhand and send me copies, just as I sent him my stories. I would always be positive and supportive, even when I felt the need for him to expand his view here or narrow it there. He was my dad, not my student, and I was proud of him, preaching. Ultimately, he was his own man, a trait with which I was familiar myself. Our exchanges meant a great deal to me, and his opinion mattered, especially while we were living so far apart. He had misgivings about our move to the West, which he never expressed to me directly, but he did to Bishop Hill, the bishop wrote to me that he had reassured my father that when the time was right, 
I would return to some new ministry that would engage all my particular talents. In the meantime, I implored my father to come out for a visit. He could enjoy his grandchildren and be refreshed by the coast, the land of his birth. In fact, I said, I could take a few days off, and he and I could do a road trip up to Britannia Beach, where he'd grown up. He thought it was a swell idea. But his health hadn't been so great lately, he said. He tired easily and was frequently short of breath. Until that sorted itself out, he just wasn't up to it. Two weeks into 1999, I was staying with friends overnight in Victoria on the eve of a diocesan council meeting. Just as we were sitting down for dinner, I got a call from Sandy. My father had died of a massive heart attack. I turned around and headed back to Euclid as Sandy began booking flights and rearranging schedules. My father, wherever he lived, was a good neighbor. When he moved to Denby, his nearest neighbor was an auto repair shop. He got to know the owner and offered to drive up to Renfrew from time to time, 45 minutes away, when the owner needed parts, in exchange for which the man did some work on my dad's car. On the day he died, my father had just returned from Renfrew with bags of groceries in each arm and car parts in his trunk. He opened the front door, stepped inside, and dropped. Likely, he was dead before he hit the floor. He lay there for several hours before he was found by his neighbor, the mechanic, who had come over to fetch the parts. The service for my dad was held in the United Church in town. It was an odd choice for a lifelong Anglican. But each Anglican church he had tried in the area had disappointed him in some way. He seemed to be developing an intolerance for women clergy in particular. He ended up fighting with them and over silly things. In truth, I wonder if they simply hadn't needed what he had to offer, his old-world chivalry, his positive thinking, his helpful male presence. So, fine, he didn't need them either. I held it together through the service until they bore his casket out to the coach and drove him away. It was such an odd way for him to go, being driven off down the street like that, as if he was going home. See you later, Dad, I felt like calling out with a wave. I wanted to smile or even to laugh, to mark his departure with humor. Instead, I sputtered as if coughing up a hairball and started choking on my tears. It was a messy display, the curse of a grown man unaccustomed to crying. Just like that, my dad was gone. He was laid to rest beside my mother in a cemetery at the juncture of two country roads outside of Exeter, Ontario. It was the town closest to where they had last lived together. After a lifetime of moves that had taken them back and forth across the country, my parents were buried far from their roots in a cemetery that bore little connection to the rest of their lives. Scattering my mother's ashes on the prairies south of Edmonton or my father's ashes on the Pacific Ocean would at least have returned them to the places of their birth. But my dad was a nomad, and they were buried quite simply in the place where they just happened to end up. I returned from my father's funeral in Ontario feeling more dislocated than ever. 
I attended an evening meeting the day of my return with the church wardens of my two congregations. Whatever we were discussing, I was too fidgety to remain at the table with them. Instead, I got up and busied myself making notes on a flip chart. They could sense my irritability, and they left me alone, saying nothing. My father's restlessness brought into focus my own. Was I to end up like him? Would I move and move and move until I was so far from any sense of home that I too would die a nomad, an unknown stranger, buried far from my loved ones in some outlying cemetery, a name and some dates on a cold stone? Several years later, Lily, a First Nations elder, would lean across a sacred circle to tell me that the earth was my home. Not Vancouver, she said, not Montreal, not Toronto, not Tofino, but everywhere I planted my feet, the earth was my home. I felt the truth of it in my heart as she spoke the words, and I was comforted. But for now, I was torn. Would I ever find my true home? What were we even doing in Euclid and Tofino? Had this just been another rash move, a mistake, or was it preparing me for something coming next? Back in Stony Creek, Bishop Bothwell had said that those were not the days of my greatest creativity. Now I had to wonder, had I missed them altogether, or were they still to come? I resisted the thought of becoming like my father, of moving yet again, but after his death, I felt a restlessness that was unlike anything I'd felt before— it was not boredom or the need for escape or even ambition to move up some ecclesiastical ladder. I loved living on the coast. I loved the people in all their quirkiness, and I loved the ocean and all its wildness. It energized me. But something was calling to me. A change was coming, with little regard for how I felt about it. It wasn't a whim or Brian getting his way— it was destiny about to get its way. By our second year in Euclid, we had settled in. My work week had filled out, still giving me time for my writing. The kids had their circles of friends. Sandy had found friends of her own among the nurses with whom she worked— when Yuki Days came around in July, the annual celebration of local logging and fishing culture, a car wove its way through the town, a loudspeaker tied to its roof, calling everyone to make their way down to the fairgrounds. As it passed our house, we were roused by name. Come on, Pearsons, up and at em. It's Yuki Days! To all appearances, we had become locals. At the church, my ministry was extending beyond the congregation into the community. I met with the band council of Port Euclid, the reserve across the harbor from the town, to explore how the church could be more supportive of the unemployed. I stood before the town council to float the idea of running a food bank or a clothing depot from the church basement. I was invited to play some songs at a multicultural event which gave me the opportunity to say a few words about the church's dark history in that part of the world, 
where residential schools had traumatized individuals and undermined an entire indigenous culture. But beneath the surface, all was not well in the Pearson household. Sandy's emotional state had become fragile. Despite a stress leave from work, she was not feeling any better. She was anxious and quick to cast blame on others, sometimes on me, for her unhappiness. Our finances were a shambles. While I tried to keep track of our monthly income and expenses, Sandy and I couldn't agree on what constituted essential expenditures. A few times we threw up our hands and pulled out the plastic to treat the family to an overnight stay down in Victoria just to get away from all the constant financial pressure, thereby compounding it. We also fretted about the children's education. The social environment was not a healthy one for them. Drug use was showing up in the lower grades. A teacher, who happened also to be our next-door neighbor, was suspended while being investigated for criminal activity relating to drug use. All our kids were smart, but none were thriving academically. Slowly, I was coming round to an inevitable conclusion. Things were not going to get better for us on the coast. Despite my happiness in my work and the thrill of living in that part of the world, things were only going to get worse for everyone else in the family the longer we stayed. It was time for us to think about getting out and putting the kids into better schools and returning Sandy at last to her own heart's true home, Calgary. I had promised Bishop Jenks a five-year incumbency, but after only a year and a half, I started casting around. Bishop Ingham in Vancouver, who I knew from my national committee work, had been trying to lure me there since my Oakville days. I made contact with Colin Johnson, the executive archdeacon of the Diocese of Toronto, who I knew from my early days at Trinity. I wanted to explore options there too. He agreed to see me on my next trip back to Toronto for a national committee meeting. But these possibilities didn't feel right. This time, it had to be Calgary or bust. I wrote to Bishop Barry Curtis in Calgary. He replied immediately, saying he was preparing to retire soon, but that Barry Foster, his executive archdeacon, would send along word of any openings in the diocese as they occurred. In late spring 1999, Barry forwarded to me a profile for St. Stephen's Church in Calgary. It was not another suburban congregation, nor was it a multi-point rural parish. It was a complex urban congregation with a reputation for social ministry. It intrigued me. In July, I was flown out for an interview with the search committee at St. Stephen's. The heat of the day had risen in the building, removing all the fresh air from the upstairs boardroom where we met. I sat across a small table from two interviewers, they read from a list of prepared questions, alternating one after the other, like slow machine gun fire. Off to my left, in my peripheral vision, a panel of five or six observers sat behind a long table, watching and taking notes. It was intimidating. I had arrived for the seven o'clock start time, too nervous to have eaten dinner. My nerves were buzzing with the coffee I'd consumed instead— but by the time I left, two hours later, I felt I had eaten the committee for breakfast. What I loved about it was how seriously they were taking their task. 
It mattered to them that they chose the right person with the right skills and the right experience to be the right minister for them at the right time. They wanted to get it all right. I felt their intensity in the questions the interviewers asked me and in the stares of the watchers who added their own questions just to be sure they understood my answers. Rather than shrink back from that spotlight, I felt myself rising up, yea, verily, on eagle's wings, just as the preacher at my deaconing had prophesied. They meant business. I meant business. This could turn out to be a good ride. A few weeks later, when they offered me the job and I accepted their offer, I dared to speculate that these just might be at last the days of my greatest creativity. But first... I had to inform Bishop Jenks. I knew he would be disappointed. He wanted to hold me to my commitment of five years. I had spoken with him several times about our growing need to move and why. Each time he suggested something that felt like he was placating me. If Sandy wanted to go back to school, he said, why didn't she enroll in Malaspina College in Nanaimo? He wasn't hearing me, which wasn't the first time I'd felt that about a bishop. When, finally, I informed him by email that I'd accepted Calgary's offer, it was as if I suddenly dropped off the planet. He never replied. At a clergy day soon afterward, when he announced all the personnel changes, who was new or moving or retiring, my name never came up. As the date of my departure approached, I made an appointment to see him in his office for an exit interview. I didn't want to leave like this. When I arrived for that meeting, he had on his computer screen the letter he'd written to Bishop Curtis, which he had decided not to send, withholding his permission to release me for a new ministry in Calgary. Our move from Ontario to the coast had not been a smooth one. Did I mention what happens when way opens, the saying Quakers don't use about being kicked in the ass? I had to wonder if we were in for more of the same this time. <laughs> Aside from giving my notice to Bishop Jenks, I had a few things to finish off in the parish before I could leave. Among them was a visit by the primate, the Archbishop of the Anglican Church of Canada, planned for October to celebrate St. Columba's 85th anniversary. So we set my start date at St. Stephen's for November 1st. Sandy and I were anxious to get the children started in their new schools at the beginning of the fall term. We agreed that she and the kids would leave the coast at the end of August, and I would follow them two months later. The family's departure left me with more time on my hands than usual. I missed their company, and I didn't like rattling around the house alone, especially at night, and especially when a rat the size of a small cat got in through the garage to take up residence between the floors above my study. I could hear it scuffling around over my head until I ended its days with a rat trap. But rats aside, there was a freedom in this arrangement. I left the house often and moved easily among the townsfolks who had by then become my friends. I ate meals and spent evenings in their homes. I went salmon fishing with one and bushwhacking with another. 
It was like Cookstown, revisited, and I loved it. But another, more troubling part of me opened up as well. I might have thought that, whatever our difficulties, Sandy and I would spend the rest of our lives working at our relationship. It wasn't a happy prospect. I retreated from her dark moods and bristled at her impulsive decision-making. Less and less of myself was showing up in our marriage, and I felt defensive, on alert, most of the time. It didn't seem she was all that happy with me, either. I was cited as the reason for most of her woes, going back to our on-again, off-again courtship, all the way up to our move to the coast. But I couldn't imagine making the changes that would bring either of us the relief and the happiness we might have wanted. Our marriage was what it was, period. We can fool our heads with that kind of thinking, but not our hearts. I was forever having crushes on other women, sometimes flirting, sometimes just enjoying the possibilities in my head, like forbidden fruit I knew I would never actually reach out for. It was a harmless diversion, an antidote to the loneliness I felt at home, until, while actually on my own, it became real. I was at the school one day, arranging for our children's files to be sent to their new schools in Calgary. I passed one of the teachers in the hallway. She had captivated me since we first arrived in town, though I'd only ever seen her from a distance, coaching school sports. I'd never spoken with her, but I'd seen her at a restaurant just a few days earlier while I was dining with friends, and I couldn't keep my eyes off her. She was, to me, a vision of loveliness. She was tall and slim, with long dark hair, and a way of looking out at the world from some untroubled place deep inside, not unlike my first impressions of Sandy. I was fascinated by what mysteries lay hidden there. Also, she was single. She recognized me and stopped to ask how the kids were doing. Fine, I said, trying to keep things neutral. Then she asked me about the house, the rectory, where we lived. Would the house become empty now when I left? because she wanted to move out of the teacher's suites in town, where she rented a small apartment during the week, returning on the weekends to her home across the island. Might the church be willing to rent the rectory to her, she wondered, until the new minister arrived? I said I'd have to check. She asked if she might come by one day to have a look. Of course she could, I said. Of course not. My head started yelling at me like an angry choir. What do you think you're doing? Are you crazy? What if she likes you? She may be lovely and you may be lonely, but are you a complete idiot? It was a conceit to imagine that she might have had any interest in me at all, a midlife married minister. But I panicked at the thought of being alone with her in the house. How was I going to get out of this? One night, with the voices in my head howling like banshees, I drank scotch, Lagavulin, a lot of Lagavulin. The more I drank, the more I wanted to get it all out. My unhappiness in my marriage, my dwindling years as a middle-aged man, my infatuation with a woman I could not pursue. And as I drank, I wrote to her. I said I was afraid she couldn't come over to see the house, after all, because I was a midlife man with a schoolboy crush on her. 
I was also a minister and married, which made things worse. I was so sorry. Clearly, I was going through some sort of personal crisis. I think I apologized several more times. Then I put the pen down, took another drink, and reread my epistle. It sounded pretty good. It was honest, at any rate. Then I folded it into an envelope, addressed it to her, care of the post office, got into the car, and careened off into the night to mail it, and thereby seal my fate. When I woke up the next day, sick to my stomach, my pulse pounding in my temples like a jackhammer, I realized what I had done. I felt like reaching out for the bottle and starting all over again. I knew I'd have to do something to fix this. It would be just too awful to live with. A few days later, as I was driving through town late in the afternoon, I saw her walking my way. Her arms were laden with a stack of books and binders. I stopped the car at the stop sign. I leaned over and rolled down the passenger window, waiting for her to draw up alongside. She kept her distance. I tried to smile reassuringly. I'm so sorry, I said. She peered at me through the open window. I assumed she knew what I was talking about. How very awkward if she didn't. She was waiting for something to come next. I tried to go on. It was just so... But I didn't have a script prepared. It was just so... What? No, it's okay, she said, letting me off the hook. I mean, it was sort of sweet. Strange, but sweet. And unwelcome, I offered. I just wondered what it said about me, she said. No, no, I said, it was all my doing. It wasn't anything you did, really. This was all my fault. No, I'm just so sorry. She nodded, and not without sympathy. She may have been startled and perhaps even alarmed to receive a love letter from a stranger, let alone from a married minister. But in that moment, I'd like to think she also saw the benign humanity of it. Maybe she had done something thoughtless like this herself, if not quite to this magnitude. We smiled at one another. A voice inside thought maybe I should suggest we go for a coffee or a drink to talk about it. No, leave it alone. It was over. I spent an inordinate amount of time in the days that were left, keeping my head down and obsessively preparing for the visit of the primate. Mainly, this meant looking for just the right Celtic font for the special bulletin we would use on that day. Meanwhile, my book, How the Light Gets In, was finally about to launch, and there was a great flurry of correspondence to prepare the manuscript and tighten up the details. The Anglican Book Centre had agreed to fly me back to Toronto for the launch, and many of my friends and former parishioners were planning to be there. I was glad of the distraction. I began taking leave of my West Coast family and of my beloved seascape. The movers came on my last Saturday and carted everything away. I stayed overnight with parishioners so I could do my Sunday services at each church the next morning. They presented me with some handsome, framed, black-and-white photographs of the area and a plaque, hand-carved by one of the members, a former logger made from a thick slab of yellow cedar. I loaded up the car and turned east at the junction, heading inland. 
As I navigated the familiar hairpin turns of the Pacific Rim Highway, the ocean now behind me, my throat constricted in that old familiar way. Only this time, tears came as well. When I returned, I knew it would be as a tourist. I've been reading from Lost Rites, Leaving Churchland. Thanks for coming along for the ride. I don't suppose you've ever done dumb, embarrassing things like I did. But if you did, I'd love to hear about them. It might make me feel better. You can post a comment or a story on the Facebook group The Mystic Cave, or you can write me personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. In the next episode, I begin the last chapter of my ministry, if not the last chapter of my memoir, at St. Stephen's Church in Calgary. But the way would not be clear. First, I'd have to get there, and then I'd have to face the last remaining hurdles to peace between my inner lion and my inner lamb. The journey continues. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. Yeah.